So we're in Genesis 46 through 48. And I just want to start with Genesis 47, 9. And I think this is so interesting that when Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? Now, I don't know how you answer that. How old are you? Uh, My mother said a woman who will tell her age will tell anything. And I tend to tell my age. So that tells you that I'm pretty much an open book. But when the Pharaoh asked Jacob, this is what Jacob said. The days of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Can you imagine saying that? The days of my pilgrimage are 60 years. But the days of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob characterized his life and the life of his father and grandfather as a pilgrimage. Well, this is really an apt description when you consider that Jacob was born into a nomadic family. Can you imagine growing up like in Yosemite? Like I was born in Yosemite on a camping trip and they've been camping ever since. I mean, Jacob was born to a life of camping. His father was constantly moving throughout the land of Canaan, digging wells, building altars, and finding fresh pasture for his livestock. His grandfather had left the city of Ur, which was a sophisticated city, to go to Canaan and spend the rest of his life in tents and in a nomadic lifestyle. Most of Jacob's life was characterized by living in tents. Um, I think Jacob was on a forced pilgrimage. He grew up in tents and lived that way for 40 years. But when his brother got upset with him, he had to leave. He had to start another pilgrimage. And then he made his way to Haran, where he lived for 21 years. But when there was an upset with his father-in-law, he had to leave again and go back on pilgrimage to the land of Canaan and live in tents. Now he tried to settle down in Shechem, But he was forced back into pilgrimage by Simeon and Levi when they made the conditions of Shechem just intolerable. He then began an extended pilgrimage through the land of Canaan, moving toward Bethel and then settling in Hebron. And we're told in Genesis 37.1 that he dwelt in the land where his father had been a stranger. Hebrews 11.13 states that this was the confession of the patriarchs. In other words, when you would ask the patriarchs, what's your life like? Uh, it's a pilgrimage. <laughs> we're always sojourners. We're, we're not settling down anywhere. So what is the difference between a pilgrim and a citizen? A pilgrim is someone who does not have roots or settle down in any certain place. Uh, they're always on a journey. Their homeland is elsewhere. Whereas a resident is someone who belongs to the place he lives, has ties to the people, has ties to the land, and is under the authority of the government um, in the place that he lives. The Apostle Peter stated that all believers in Jesus are to consider themselves pilgrims and sojourners when it comes to life on earth. In 1 Peter 2.11, he said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, this is who you are. This is your identity. I think that there are some inherent dangers when we as believers forget that we are called to pilgrimage. Uh, We are called to be sojourners. I think that's when the days of our life turn few and evil. It's when we try to make heaven on earth. We try to make this place, earth, heaven. And when we do that, we get mad when earth doesn't feel like heaven, doesn't cooperate as heaven should. We try to make our best life now instead of knowing our best life is yet to be. I had one of those days the other day. I, I think God gives us these days that remind us that we're on pilgrimage and not to settle down. I dressed, I was all ready. But I looked and I felt awkward in what I was wearing, so I had to change again. Um, At 60, things don't fit like they used to fit. Things are shifting around. And, you know, at my age, it's like 
does this make me look too old? Like, is it dowdy looking? Do I, you know, I, I got this outfit online because we're all shopping online, right? I got this outfit and it looks so cute on the model. And it does. It looks cute on anyone under 30. But you put that on a 60-year-old and it's like I felt like people expected me to, you know, be passing out muffins or something. It was just not a good look. Or then there are those, those things you put on and you're like... Um, no, you're not 25. You shouldn't be wearing this. In fact, it looks kind of obscene. It's it's just crazy how things change. So anyway, I finally found an outfit that fit that I didn't feel awkward in, and I started putting my makeup on. And I I did this thing with my eyeliner, and it just it blobbed. Ever have that where it blobs? It just hits this blob and then when you go to get it off, it just like goes all over your face. So you have to wash your face. You have to start all over again. Well, it was one of those days. And so I was like, okay, I finally got that fixed and realized I got the blob on my dress. So then I had to take the dress that actually fit well for a 60 year old and kind of made me look normal off and find something else to wear. So I thought, okay, finally, I had the right outfit. My makeup's all right. I'm ready to go out the door. But you know what? I needed a cup of coffee or I was going to get one of those headaches that you get when you don't have coffee. I have a special machine where you press a button and I can get a latte. I was so excited. But one of those things, when you press the button, you have to make sure the milk nozzle is out and going into the cup. I didn't. It was pressed here. So the nozzle instead put all the froth milk into every crevice of that machine and then down the machine and all over the sink and onto the floor. So now I've got a mess. I've got a mess and I've got to be at the church. I actually was supposed to be doing a Bible study. Not today. This was another day. I'm not as stressed. But this day, it was going all over every place. And so I was down to my last roll of paper towels. And you know, we're all conserving on paper towels because they are worth gold. So I didn't want to use that. So I went to my rag bin. You guys have rag bins? Went to my rag bin. I went to grab one rag and they all spilled out all over the floor. Like everywhere was rags. So I grabbed the rag I need, which was insufficient. So I had to go back and get another rag and trying to get it out of the crevice. Meanwhile, my phone starts going off. And who is it going off by? All the people that know that I should be at church right then. And they're all sending me texts. Are you all right? Are you coming? Did you know you're supposed to be here? And a lot of them are from Brian. Well, you can't answer them because I'm trying to speed clean the coffee maker, the floor. I want to just throw the rags back into the bin. And so I finally get this done. And I realize that I have got milk and coffee all over my third outfit. Yes, it was three because I tried two in the beginning. So now I have to go upstairs and change all over again. And I remember just getting in the car and saying, Lord, you know, the enemy is just after me. This is just, you know, such a hard day. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Cheryl, Satan can't get you in the big things. So sometimes he tries to ruin you with the small things. He can't do the worst, so he'll try the least. Don't let it get to you. You're on a pilgrimage. It was so clear. Cheryl, this is not your home. When you get where you belong, he can't get to you at all. But you know, I think we get this upset instead of being able to laugh like, oh, I just spilled rags. Oh, I just globbed my eyeliner. Oh, nothing fits me. We're just like panicked. Like this is terrible. My life is over. But it's not. It's not at all. We're just on a pilgrim itch. We don't enjoy the days we have because we know that our days are numbered on earth. So we're like, I can't afford a bad day. I only have a few days. We expect every day to be fulfilling and comfortable and without any issues. No, when you're on pilgrimage, there's lots of issues. You do not expect You know, when you go camping, you don't expect the air mattress to feel like your mattress at home. You don't expect to eat the same food. In fact, one of the things that you eat when you're vacationing is charred food. It's just a part of camping. You have to burn everything. I never eat beans out of a can unless I'm camping because otherwise I hate them. Last year, Jasmine and I got the opportunity to go to Columbia. And we had this room that we shared and we were on bug beds. I remember just getting on the bed going, whoa, this has no give. And then Jasmine got on her top bunk and went, whoa, 
well, they gave you the comfortable bed. And I'm like, really? You want to trade? You just want to see? We both had these um, rock mattresses. That's what I'll call them, rock mattresses. And you know what we did? We laughed hysterically that our beds had no give. We had to search for plugs um, in order to charge our, you know, um, phones and our iPads. Um, we took freezing cold showers because there was no heat in the showers at all. And they were coming straight from some icic glacier. We took crazy taxi rides without seat belts and crammed into the back seat of a car. Uh, we ate new foods with strangers who became our friends. We took hikes in these strange terrains and stepped over biting ants, and we wore crazy hats because of the sun and the heat, and we got caught in downpours of rain. We were accosted by smells and a thousand inconveniences, and we laughed at every one. Why did we laugh? This was not our country. This was only temporary. We had no expectations for this country except to experience something that was unusual, uh, something that was not part of our, our true life and where we really lived and belonged. We had warm showers at home. We had comfortable beds at home. We didn't come to experience to experience the conveniences of home. We came to meet people. We came to tell them about Jesus Christ. And so our expectations were totally different. Now, our days become few and evil because our perspective toward the land that we're visiting, that we're in, um, is not right. We're not seeing it as a pilgrimage. We're seeing it as a residence. And as residents, we're thinking, we can't live like this. We've got to vote against this. We've got to take up arms. We've got to change this. And then we begin to see people as contenders, the competitors, and the opponents, rather than the lost, the broken, the sick, who need to know that they can become citizens of a better country, of a better sovereign, in a better, more beautiful place, we try, we begin to compete with these people to get to the last roll of paper towels before they hoard them all. We try to beat them out in line or in the parking lot or at the traffic light. We stop praying for these people and we start contending and competing. Why? Because we forgot that we are the citizens of a greater land. And they are the slaves of this land who need salvation, who need to be taken to a better place. Few and evil because we hoard and try to protect all we have. We feel responsible to keep everyone and everything we own safe. We do everything in our power to ward off the moth, the dust, the rust, the thief, and the uncomfortable. And we spend our days grumbling and guarding and safeguarding and worrying over. If only we could keep that perspective that we are pilgrims. We are only here for a short time and we are here to represent a great sovereign and a great land that we belong to. If only we would realize that God is with us on this pilgrimage. This is a journey. This is an adventure. Whenever I used to get lost uh, driving the car when my kids were little, um, they'd say, Mom, are you lost? Especially when they became teenagers. Mom, are you lost? And I'd say, no, this is an adventure. And so when they suspected that I was lost, they would turn to each other and they're like, look, another adventure with mother. But it's only in pilgrimage that we can clearly hear the voice of God. It's only in pilgrimage that the promises and the assurance we need for the journey truly become ours and that we recognize how desperately we need the promises. It is only when we're on a pilgrimage that we are able to know the provision of God. It is only on pilgrimage that we become distinct from others. You know, have you ever realized when you go to a different land, oh my goodness, they dress differently than I dress. This is how the people here dress and you, you stand out because you're dressed differently. It is only on pilgrimage that we bring blessings to others. We become a blessing 
and we can bless others. In Genesis 46, we begin this to understand, to ascertain this pilgrimage of Jacob. I believe up to this point, I believe for a number of years, Jacob had forgotten that he was a pilgrim. I think uh, this forgetfulness came after Joseph was, um, in Jacob's mind at least, murdered. I think that is when he began to settle down and his days became few and evil. He was grieving so desperately. He was mourning. He was thinking that the past was better than the present. I believe that he settled down in Hebron and he again tried to put down roots, perhaps because this was the last place he had seen Joseph. And if he had any hope of Joseph being alive, he thought that Joseph would return to this place. And he wanted to make sure that if Jacob was, if there was any chance Joseph was alive, that he would find them at Hebron. Grief and anger have a way of paralyzing us and keeping us from moving on or moving forward. It, it stops us and we're unable to continue our pilgrimage. Jacob was being called by God again to a new pilgrimage, to leave the land of Canaan where he had lived for the last 65 years. It's crazy how fast we settle in. Um, I remember when we moved from um, Oceanside to London, I had so much accumulated uh, stuff. We had lived in that house for 13 years, and I couldn't believe all the things I had accumulated in 13 years. And I felt duly rebuked, like, I can't believe, speaking to myself, you kept all this junk. What were you thinking? Did you really need this or that? And I remember just like clearing out, and it felt so good. So we went to England with hardly anything. In fact, <laughs> my china all broke in this, in the, um, in the transport. And so all that I had to eat on was, it was hilarious, were those Tupperware squares. That was it. And so when people came over, the English came over for dinner, it's like, I hope you're okay with Tupperware. And they didn't know what Tupperware was, so they were very impressed. But but I remember just clearing out, we lived in England for four years. Now, how much can you accumulate? Everything was expensive. But when we went to go back, again, I had to clear out. And I realized, how did I accumulate all of this stuff again in just four years? But Jacob had 65 years just to accumulate because he had settled down. You see, when you stop traveling, uh, when you're not on pilgrimage, you begin just to collect. You begin just to hoard up all this stuff, just stuff. And you find that you have just so much. Now, He's going to start a pilgrimage. Now it's time to start getting rid of things again and only keeping what is absolutely vital and necessary. So as he's making his way out of Canaan, he stops at Beersheba. And there he offers a sacrifice to God near the tamarisk tree that his grandfather Abraham had planted I think that this is the first time in a long time that Jacob has communicated with God. I think an absence of communication came in when Joseph disappeared. I, I believe that Jacob was so upset with God. And, and if you remember, Jacob's life with God up to this point can can really be a constant wrestling between Jacob's will and God's will. Jacob doing for God rather than just receiving from God and walking with God and participating with God. So now there's this absence of communication for 20 years. He has not spoken to the Lord, somewhere around 20 years. Uh, no communication between them. And now he goes and he offers God a sacrifice before he leaves the land that was promised him. It's here that God speaks to him. And the reason I, I came up with that premise is because here 
God does not use the covenant name Israel. He uses the name Jacob, his, his former name. And he says it twice, Jacob, Jacob. And even in saying it, it's almost an attention getter, like Jacob, Jacob. Why did you doubt? Why did you wrestle? Now that you're aware of everything I was doing, Jacob, Jacob. This is not the name of the covenant. God is reminding Jacob of who Jacob is, his natural estate, but he's also reminding Jacob of who he is. I am God. I've never stopped being God. I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Jacob had lived in fear and feeling vulnerable. Remember, Jacob was the guy who thought he had to get for himself. Remember, he thought he had to deceive his father in order to get the blessing that God had promised him. He felt like he had to deceive his uncle and do all these tricks with um, the mating habits of the sheep and goats and cows in order to enrich his life. He felt that he had to bribe his brother with um, livestock in order to bring that peace that God had promised him that he would have in Canaan. He felt like he had to move from Shechem because of what Levi and Simeon had done, lest he be wiped out. In other words, Jacob felt like he had to take care of himself. And the time that he trusted and trusted and sent his son, who was supposed to be the patriarch, who had these dreams from God, what happened? The report was given to him that his son had died. I believe Jacob thought, I have got to take care of myself. I'm responsible to make the promises of God happen. The death of Joseph or the supposed death of Joseph, I believed had left Jacob feeling so vulnerable. When somebody who is very close to you dies, it leaves you with this feeling of vulnerability. I remember after my father died, I felt like I had a target on my back. I felt like I was vulnerable to, to all of nature, to every device of the enemy, um, to every evil thing. I just felt so vulnerable. And I started having these panic attacks and I didn't know why until a sweet friend said to me, Cheryl, didn't you know that one of the repercussions of losing somebody you love is, is fear, is anxiety. And then I was able to trace back this feeling of abject vulnerability to the death of my father. Something so precious, something that I treasured, someone who I treasured so much, a relationship that I absolutely adored was gone. And I felt so vulnerable. Death has a way of doing that. This treasure, this person that Jacob had loved with all of his heart, that he had prioritized above anything else, had been taken from him, and he felt vulnerable. So Jacob needed the assurance that he did not need to squat on the land to have it as an inheritance. He didn't have to hold it so tightly. He was not responsible to make the promises of God happen. Oh, how many times do we feel so responsible? Oh, God's probably not going to do that for me because I didn't pray hard enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't pray eloquently enough. I didn't pray the right prayers. I remember when my daughter was getting married and she got married young. I didn't expect her to get married at 18. I thought I had, you know, five, six more years. And I remember when she was getting married, I all of a sudden had this thought like, oh no, everybody else I know has prayed for the right spouse for their daughter. I never prayed that prayer. I thought I had five years. I was, it was one of those prayers. I was going to start praying. I was going to start it like in a year or two years. That was going to be the next prayer, the, the next object 
of my prayers. And all of a sudden, this thought came to me, what, he might not be the right person because I haven't been praying. And maybe God couldn't send the right person because I wasn't praying. And all of a sudden, I felt like everything God was supposed to do was dependent on me praying the right prayers at the right time. And here she's getting married, and I don't even know because I haven't been praying for this particular subject. Isn't it crazy how God sometimes blesses us in unexpected ways, ways we haven't even prayed. I mean, seriously, I have gotten two of the best sons-in-law in the whole wide world. Sorry for all of you who thought you had them. No, God gave them to me. Seriously, the best sons-in-law. Like they've even, you know, willing to take care of me when I get aged. The best. But you know, sometimes we feel so responsible to make the promises of God happen. Like if we don't pray just right, if we don't read the right portion of scripture, if we don't apply the right scripture, if we're not nice, if we have an irritable day, like none of you have, but I have. If we do that, the promises of God aren't going to happen. I am so blessed that the promises of God were not dependent on Jacob, but on God himself. Uh, In our homework this week, we talked about God being our shepherd. And one thing I love about the 23rd Psalm is that he does this for his name's sake. It's all dependent on his goodness. He does these things because he is good, not because we're so good, not because we deserve, oh, you deserve a blessing today. You've been so good. No, he does these things because he is so good good. And he protects his reputation of being a good God, a great God, a gracious God, a glorious God. He does it for his namesake. But you see, when we forget we're on pilgrimage, we start trying to hoard. We start trying to hold. We start trying to make things happen. Jacob did not have to try to make a nation out of his clan. God would make him a nation, just as God had promised. And it wouldn't happen in the promised land. It would happen while he was on pilgrimage in the wrong land. Isn't that crazy? And then God says, I'm going to be with you every step in this journey. I'm going to be with you. At this word of assurance, Jacob and his sons, grandsons, granddaughters, and all of his household moved into Egypt, lock, stock, and barrel. You might say they got on those carts and they began to move towards Egypt. Coming into the border of Egypt, Jacob sent Judah and said, go talk to your brother Joseph. Tell him, uh, ask him, where are we supposed to go from here? Because this was a land that Jacob had never been to. This was a land that his father had never been to, but his grandfather Abraham had been to. But Jacob did not know his way in Egypt at all. He'd never been there before. He didn't know the way to Goshen. So Judah goes ahead to ask Joseph, how do we get to Goshen? Where is this land at? You know, we just at the border. We're just inside the gate. Where do we go? Now, Joseph not only obviously gives these directives to Judah. But the moment he hears that his father is inside the borders, he starts making his way to Goshen. He gets on his chariot, which was probably the fastest mode of travel. And he wants to see his father. I can just see um, him racing to see his father. I think this must have been so off-putting for Jacob because he doesn't know what to expect. The last time he saw Joseph, he was a teenager. He was a a boy. Now, this Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt. And instead of a, a young boy coming in a multicolored coat, what Jacob sees is this important personage on a chariot, no less, rushing towards him, dust clouds coming behind the fast steeds, rushing towards him. And as this chariot pulls up to this wooden cart, pulled probably by a mule, there's his son. 
there's his son. And his son, this great, important person, embraces him, hugs him, falls on his neck, just weeping. I mean, can you imagine? This is, this is the most important person in Egypt next to Pharaoh. And he's like, Daddy, Daddy, I love you, Daddy. I mean, I just, I love this story. I love this part of the story of Joseph better than any other part, this reunion. Maybe it makes me long for the time when I get to see my earthly father again. And I'm, I'm wondering, will I fall on his neck just weeping, just so excited to see my father? But how much more to see my heavenly father, to see the father who has sent his son I just can't wait for that day. I think there is something in all of us that loves a reunion. It loves a reunion. See, that's part of pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is always looking for the reunion. The day that we get to the place that we've come from, the the day that we come home and we see the whole family, all those that we have loved, we love a reunion. I I don't know about you, but I I love the stories of a reunion. I just read a story about two sisters who who were lost to each other. And the one was crossing a street in New York and she heard a voice calling her name. And she said, that sounds like my sister, but I haven't seen her in nine years. I don't even know where she lives. And she turned around and there in the middle of a sidewalk in New York, they embraced and began to weep until they were obstructing traffic. And had to stop. And since that day, which was over 25 years ago, they have talked every single day on the phone. Is that like, I love that story. It's a true story. Read it in Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest only does true things. We know that. But it was so exciting to read that story. There's something so wonderful in this story of a reunion. After they're reunited, Joseph instructs his whole family to tell the Pharaoh that they're shepherds. Now, this is interesting because shepherds, that occupation was abominable to the Egyptians. In other words, it was detestable. It was something that no Egyptian ever wanted to be, a shepherd. My mom said years ago she was watching a candid camera. Some of you remember that show. Others of you like, I don't know what you're talking about. But what it was a show that would um, kind of play tricks on people. And in this show, they brought these people in and they had these people take a placement test, a career placement test. And the people came in and then they told them, um, you know, you are to be a nuclear scientist. And the person would be like, what? A nuclear scientist? Or they would give them like just this, you know, obscure occupation. So this person comes in and he sits down and they looked at him and they said, we've looked through all the data. And, you know, we've noticed you have eight years of college, and that's really good. But uh, the best career choice for you is shepherd. Uh, We'll be back to give you a little more information. They leave him in the room just to get his reaction. And he's like, shepherd, shepherd. Like, what's a shepherd do? And he's looking over the data, and they come back in, and they're like, "Um, you need to get a flock of sheep um, immediately. And do you have a place where you could raise these sheep? And they're telling him all about sheep, and this guy's just like, shepherd? Are you kidding me? Well, this is what, like his reaction, this is what the reaction of um, the Egyptians was to shepherd. Shepherd. Shepherd was disgusting. It was um, below them. It was the lowest of jobs and occupations because you were working with animals, and you smell like animals, and... uh, You live among the animals and you're safeguarding animals. Now, in Genesis uh, chapter 47, Joseph chose five of his brothers to present to Pharaoh. And again, he, when they were asked what their occupation was, they did as Joseph instructed. They said, not only are we shepherds, but according to verse three, we come from shepherds. Again, this occupation of shepherds, though it was a humiliating occupation, it was through this humiliation that the 
that the tribe of Israel would not become idolatrous like the Egyptians. In other words, they would practice social distance. They would not assimilate into the culture of Egypt and therefore lose their distinction as being Israel and becoming a nation. And this way, they would continue to hold and to have all the promises of God, the covenant of God. So the brothers say that. Then Joseph's brothers uh, tell Pharaoh that they have come only to sojourn in the land. In other words, they're saying to Pharaoh, we're not going to settle down here. This is just a temporary stay. So we won't be taking from your country. We'll be giving to your country. We're only passing through. They have come because there is no pasture land in Canaan. And there is pasture land. There is land for their livestock. The brothers are respectful to Pharaoh. Why? They're on his land. They're not on their own land. They, they don't have rights in Egypt. And so they're respectful. And they refer to themselves as servants. We're here to service you, to bless you while we're here. Those who visit a land must be respectful of the authorities that are in that land. While you're in that land, you live according to the rules of the land. You learn the culture of that land, but it's not your own culture. When I lived in England, I remember I was at a farmer's market. Now here, as you know, in America, when we go to a farmer's market, you're allowed to choose your own apples and put them in a bag and then they weigh them. So I go to this farmer's market which is in England, and I start picking out the apples that I want. The guy says, hey, what are you doing there? And I said, I'm, I'm just getting apples. You don't touch my apples. I choose the apples for you. Sure enough, he chose all the bro bruised, all the awful apples. He puts the nice ones in the front, but they're only for show. You're not even allowed to touch them. And he gave me the awful apples. I learned later that that was just that man and not always the condition of the farmer's market. But I remember walking through um, it, uh, like a cafeteria line. You know how we have our trays? And so I had a tray and I had gotten a mug of coffee and I went to pour myself some coffee. And again, this lady comes rushing up. Hey, what are you doing there? Because I was in Northern England. And I said, I'm pouring a cup of coffee. And she says, oh, love you're from America, aren't you? Here, you can't pour your own cup of coffee. I have to do it for you, love. And I said, well, thank you very much. I'm so sorry. I didn't understand. You see, there were different rules in England than the rules here. Now here, you walk through a cafeteria line, you better pour your own coffee. If you're waiting for somebody to pour your coffee for you, you'll be waiting for a very long time or they'll think you think you're Queen Kamehameha and you know you want all the perks. It's a different way and you have to learn to live according to the different way. But you know, it's only temporary because you think in the land that I come from, you pour your own coffee. It's, it's just the way that we think. Again, in England, one of the things, don't ask me why I'm off on this, but I am. It's not in my notes. It's just fun. But in England, you pack your own groceries. You know, they, in, they might give you a bag, but you're supposed to come with your own bags, which is now what we do. But nobody packs them for you. You pack your own bags. And that was something getting used to. They're looking at me like, why are you standing there? <laughs> you know, pack your bag, girl. And I was like, oh. Sorry about that. But I was learning uh, what it's like and, you know, different rules. And so there, I packed my own bags. Um, if you're in New Jersey, which is kind of a, a land all to itself, you're not allowed to pump your own gasoline. You have to have an attendant um, pump your gas. You get out and you start to pump your gas, they'll, they'll yell at you. And, you know, if you've never heard someone from New Jersey yell, it's not a pleasant experience. So the brothers are respectful of the rules of the land because they're going to cooperate with these rules because it's not the rules of where they live. Joseph brings his father then and presents him to Pharaoh. Jacob as a sojourner is a representative of God. And so he blesses Pharaoh. He does not complain about the conditions of the land. No, he blesses Pharaoh. 
He doesn't talk about the inconveniences of travel. No, he blesses Pharaoh. What did Jacob say? What did Jacob do when he blessed? I believe there were two things. I believe that he brought a blessing is to bring the attention of God to a person and to bring that person's attention to a good God and what that God can do. That's what it is to bless. It's to get God's attention on that person of all his good things. The Lord bless you and keep you and causes his face to shine upon you. It's bringing the attention of God on a person, but also showing that person all the good that God intends and wants to give. Jacob identifies his life as this pilgrimage, a long journey away from his homeland. He says that the years have been 137, but those are few. Those are few. Can you imagine um, 137 days like as few? I'm sorry, 137 years as few and yet never attaining to how long his father and forefathers lived. Then something very interesting takes place in Genesis 47, 11 through 27. What you have then is a comparison between the residents of Egypt and the sojourner or the pilgrimage of the children of Israel. We read about the residents in Egypt that they continue to feel the famine. Their land is affected and subject to the deficiency of food and the harshness of nature. They're subject, they're vulnerable. And then we read that their money fails them. The currency of Egypt has failed them. Then we read that they lose all their livestock. They have to exchange their livestock just to survive, just to live. And then when their livestock all belongs to Pharaoh, all they have left is their lives and their properties. So they have to barter these things just for food. And they become indentured slaves to Pharaoh. They become weakened, impoverished, suffer loss, and ultimately become slaves to the land that they live in. For the rest of their days, they will owe Pharaoh one-fifth of all they grow and produce. They will forever be connected to Pharaoh and owe him one-fifth of anything they gain. In the meantime, the tribe of Israel is provided for abundantly by Joseph. Meanwhile, the tribe of Israel dwells in the land of Goshen, a land with with plenty. Meanwhile, they are able to hold on to their livestock. They're not traded. They keep their position, their possessions. Meanwhile, the tribe of Jacob multiplies. It grows. Here is the difference between pilgrims and residents. In the end, those who belong to the earth will owe all they have to the earth and find themselves slaves to it and making payments on all their labor for the rest of their lives. But those who are pilgrims enjoy the best of the land. They are fed, they're taken care of, they keep what God has given to them and they cannot lose it. They flourish, growing and multiplying. This is the difference between visiting Russia and living in Russia. That's the difference. You know, when you go on a pilgrimage, when you go to visit a land, you're usually getting the best of the land, the best treatment, uh, the, the best food. I remember visiting Jamaica and uh, our tour guide was telling us um, how the crime is, is so bad in Jamaica. And I just looked at her and my eyes got really big and she said, oh, not for you. You're a tourist. We're, we treat tourists so well. It's like an unwritten rule here in Jamaica that nobody hurts a tourist because we need your money. 
We want you to love Jamaica and to come back to Jamaica and spend money here. No, we're only mean to each other. That's the difference between being a resident and a pilgrim. As a pilgrim, you get the best, not the worst. And everything is temporary. Jacob calls for an audience with Joseph. And he reminds Joseph that he does not belong in Egypt. I don't belong here. And when I die and when I'm buried, I want you to bury me in Hebron. I want you to bury me in the grave that my father and my grandfather are in. He wants to be buried in the land that he was promised. And he makes Joseph swear to this. Joseph is the person who can make this happen. He's got the connections. And so this is the request of Jacob to his son, Joseph. We go then to Genesis chapter 48. And in this chapter, Joseph is told that Jacob is sick. So Joseph makes his way, taking his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see their grandfather. We don't know how long Jacob was sick. Remember, he's already 137 years. He might have been sick for five years, 10 years, might have been sick for 15, 16 years. But as Joseph brings Manasseh and Ephraim in, it would seem that they must still be young, maybe even teenagers. Jacob shares his testimony with his son and grandsons. And he says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, which we know as Bethel, in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Jacob is telling his son and grandsons, I had an encounter with the living God. This is what put me on pilgrimage. It was these promises. He is telling his sons, his son and his grandson that he answers to the sovereign God who is almighty. And it's the sovereign God who has made these promises to him and who has accomplished every good thing in his life. And he is telling his son and his grandsons how good, how certain the promises of God are. And finally, this is an invitation to Joseph's sons into the blessing and promises of God. God Almighty is is greater than anything that Egypt has to offer. Remember, these are the sons of the prime minister. They could have the best of Egypt. And what is Jacob offering them? A shepherd's life. A shepherd's life. He says, come be shepherds with me. Live in Goshen with me. Why? Because God and serving God is greater than the best that Egypt has to offer. It's a tender moment as we read in in verses 8 through 22. I love it when Jacob asks, who are these? Being a grandma myself, you know, that's sometimes what you say. When you haven't seen your grandsons in a while, you're like, now who? Who is this? Hey, this can't be Judah. He's too tall. He, he looks too old. His shoulders have gotten too broad. This can't be Judah. And then, of course, Judah will be like, Grandma, of course it's me. Senile old thing that she is. Sure is sweet, but mm, missing a few bricks. But that's what you do with your grandchildren. Who are these? And he beckons Joseph to bring them close so he can bless them. You see, again, the life of pilgrimage is a life that calls people into blessing and seeks to bless. So Jacob kisses them and embraces his grandsons. Note that at this time, Jacob is not called Jacob, but Israel. He is called Israel because every time he's in pilgrimage, every time he's living by the goodness and promises of God, he is 
Israel. He is the one who is under the authority of God. Because when we are under the authority of God, we are on pilgrimage and we are seeking to bless and be a blessing every place we go. Israel's eyes are dim with age. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has shown me your offspring. God has gone beyond anything I ever expected. I thought the least of God. I asked the least of God, the smallest thing, but God has given me the greatest. I not only get to see you, and all that God has done in your life. But I get to see my grandsons. I get to see Ephraim and Manasseh. If Jacob had not agreed to leave Canaan and take this one last pilgrimage, he would never have seen with his eyes the goodness of God. He might have stayed at home and heard about it but he never would have seen it. Now on pilgrimage, he was experiencing the blessing of God. He was seeing Joseph with his own dimming eyes and his grandsons. He was holding on. He was embracing. He was touching. It was a sensory experience. Seeing, hearing, feeling, kissing, tasting smelling the blessing of God. Israel placed his hands on the boy's heads. He puts his right hand on the youngest, Ephraim, his left hand on the oldest, Manasseh. He is reversing the cultural norm. Remember, we've talked about this before. It was the oldest that was to receive the the patriarchal blessing uh, of the right hand. But here in this place, It is the youngest. Uh, Joseph tries to move his father's hands like, no, father, you've got it wrong. But Israel prophetically says, no, Joseph, I have it right. Because God is going to bless both of these young men. But Ephraim is going to be larger and greater than Manasseh. And that's exactly what happened. The tribe of Ephraim was greater. In fact, Uh, The northern tribe, Israel, was often also called Ephraim. In fact, the name Ephraim came to signify all the tribes except the tribe of Judah and Levi. Um, When someone would speak of Ephraim, they were talking about 10 of the tribes of, of Israel. Sorry, nine of the tribes of Israel. So we see this, um, we see that he is doing this prophetically. Then he blesses the sons of Joseph, testifying of God's faithfulness in the pilgrim life. Remember, God's blessing brings God's attention to the person being blessed and brings the person being blessed's attention to how good God is. So he says, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who is fed me all my life long to this day, the angel or messenger of God who redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob is asking God that his name, all the blessings that God has promised to Israel be given to these boys, that these boys be brought into the covenant, be brought into the promises, be brought into the land that God has given, the inheritance that God has promised, that these boys might have this. I I believe that this blessing is also a prayer that these boys would have the right priorities and see the covenant of God as greater than anything that Egypt has to offer 
He blesses the boys again, saying, By you, Israel will bless, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, boys, God has great things for you. You know, to me, this is so inspirational. Are we telling the young people, God has great things for you? Are we saying, just just do an Enneagram? No, that's not the promise of great things. It's not found in us or in our natural abilities or capabilities or propensities. No, the greatness is found in a great God who loves to bless or bless and do the total unexpected thing. This morning I was I was reading in um, Philippians uh, chapter one, where Paul prays over the Philippians that they might be filled with love in all knowledge and discernment, that they might be able to affirm and confirm, that they might be able to approve the good that God is doing in others. Did you ever realize that God wants to fill us so full of his love that we will see, we will see his goodness. We will see his anointing on others. We will see the love of God and how he wants to spill it out on on others and that we will want to tell them how good God is. That sometimes people don't see the, the goodness that God is doing in them. Isn't it awesome? That the love of God opens our eyes and we can say, oh my goodness, you are so amazing. Do you realize God is doing this and has done this? And I'm seeing just the goodness of God in your creation, in what he did in putting you together. Oh my goodness, when we're on pilgrimage, we're like, oh, aren't those mountains gorgeous? Aren't those flowers beautiful? You see, we're able to, oh, aren't those people amazing? Aren't those women beautiful? I, You know, it's like sometimes I go to another uh, country like Hungary and I'm like, is every woman here just absolutely gorgeous? I mean, it's just one of those things that you see. Um, Australia too, man, the women are gorgeous. But you're just like going, oh my God goodness, look how beautiful this is. And we're blessing God in it. We don't live here, but we can, because sometimes when you're in it, you're not appreciating it because it's your everyday routine and you're a resident and you're just getting by and you hate the traffic. But when you're just passing through, you're like, oh, their style of cars is so different than our style of cars. And the way they drive on the roads is so different than we drive on the roads. You see, you're on pilgrimage. You get to appreciate and point out all the beauty of the land, all the great things. So he speaks prophetically. Oh my goodness, isn't that what everyone wants? A grandpa who speaks the blessings of God over them? I I mean, I think of this, like their other grandfather, he was a priest in Egypt. He was all full of pomp and circumstance and part of the elite and and worship pagan gods. But here's this shepherd grandpa, the, the shepherd grandpa, the grandpa without any money, but all of this affection, all of this love, the one who wanted to bless his grandsons, the one who said, hey, wanna play with a lamb or milk a cow? This is the grandpa that they wanted to be associated with. You see, people are drawn to love and they're drawn to acceptance and they're drawn to grace more than elitism, more than success. You know, I I wanna be the grandma that blesses my grandchildren. That is a blessing that, that affirms and confirms the goodness of God. In fact, I wanna be a grandma to a lot of young people. Uh, I'm praying that somehow we can do vacation Bible school because that was like one of the best things I've ever done with my life. No wonder Ephraim and Manasseh chose to associate with Israel rather than Egypt. Here was the love. Here was the promise. Here was God Almighty. Here was a future and an adventure. There is a promise for Joseph too. As Jacob says, behold, or Israel, I am dying, but God will be with you. 
and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Your destiny, Joseph, is not Egypt. Your destiny is the promises of God. Joseph knew what it was to have God with him, even in slavery and imprisonment, and even in exaltation, the government of Egypt. Israel apportioned more to Joseph. Joseph would receive a double. He is the only son of Israel, Jacob, to have two tribes. The rest of them just had the tribe, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Levi, the, uh, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Asher, etc. But he had two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, who became two distinct tribes in Israel. The only property that Jacob ever owned in Canaan would go to Joseph. Though Joseph could purchase anything with the wealth of Egypt, he could own any property in Egypt or Canaan. This little plot given to him in Canaan by his father was of greater wealth, of greater value. Do you have some uh, potentially worthless trinket in your in your home, but it's precious because it was a, a family heirloom because it was passed on to you? I have this little uh, pastor with this little kind of strange hairdo. It's a little tiny um, figurine. And I remember my mom had had it for years and it always kind of looked like my Aunt Isi, who was a preacher and she'd always wear a black robe. And it reminded me of um, my Aunt Isi, who had been a Foursquare um, pastor. And I loved it. And it used to have its finger up and its Bible open like this, you know, as, as if it was preaching. And I remember one day the, the little finger broke on it. So my mom decided to throw it away. And I was like, oh, Mom, don't throw it away. Can I have it? And she's like, you want it? I'm like, yes. So there I have, as one of my greatest treasures, this little little figurine with a broken finger. It goes like this with its Bible. And it's one of my favorite. It's one of the treasures. You know, if there's a fire, I'm going to go for that figurine (laughs) and my computer because it's got all my pictures. But this is like one of the greatest treasures that I own. So for Joseph, it's this treasure which signifies the promises of God to his father that, that his father fought for and won. This is of great value to Joseph. Though Jacob's life, through Jacob's life, we see the plight of a pilgrim. Things don't always go as planned. Uh, There is always the danger of trying to settle down and settle in. Because when we do that, we expect only comfort and ease on earth. And we seek to be enriched by the land rather than to enrich the land. We look at earth as the end rather than the journey. And when this happens, our days become few and evil. Jacob's life became few and evil when he settled down into his grief and disappointment in God. He stopped moving forward. He tried to settle in and his whole family began to starve. In fact, his whole inheritance was on the verge of extinction. However, when our hearts are set on pilgrimage, then even the valleys of weeping are transformed into springs. Psalm 84, 5 through 7. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, which means the valley of tears, they make it a spring. Side note, I just read that the pers- an average person sheds thirty to 40,000 gallons of tears a year. I don't know how that can be. You must be a crybaby. Nevertheless, back to this. The Valley of Weeping, that's enough to fill a pool though. They make it a spring. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. Then in verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Rather than grief paralyzing you, rather than those tears being angry, and keeping you from moving forward. 
in the journey, in the sojourn, when we're, our hearts are set on pilgrimage, even our grief can be turned by God into pools of refreshment for others, pools that others can be washed and cleansed, refreshed, and, and drink from. The pilgrim mindset transforms our whole manner of life and experience in life. It causes us to look for the goodness of God. It causes us to seek God's direction where we're going and where we are to go. It causes us to treasure his promises. It causes us to desire to bless and bring blessing and seek to bless others. It leaves us dependent on the goodness of God for all of our need. When life gets tough, when you glob your eyeliner or your clothes don't fit right, remember, this is just a sojourn. You have something far greater waiting for you in the place you belong. You were created for God and to be where he is. When I was young, um, in the hippie days, we used to sing this song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckoned me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel that home in this world anymore. We're not meant to settle in or settle down. This is just a pilgrimage. And that's what the Bible said, blessed or oh, how happy is the person whose heart is set on pilgrimage, who realizes this is just a temporary stay. I'm here to bless and to find God's blessing and to be a blessing. That's the purpose of my time here. Not to settle in, not to get the best, because you know what? My suitcases can't hold a lot of souvenirs. I'm just here to bless and to enrich others. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would set our hearts on pilgrimage, that you would remind us that we are just pilgrims and sojourners. Lord, that we would seek to bless and to be a blessing and to bring your blessing to others. Lord, work, work this pilgrimage in our hearts until we know that who we are is pilgrims. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.